Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Hi, happy Easter. My name is Cheryl. And the passage I'm going to read this morning is from Philippians 3, verses 4 through 11. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. You may be seated. Well, welcome to those of you that are watching online. I also just want to acknowledge that some of you are home and sick and couldn't be here, and we're grateful that you're able to jump in with us online and join us. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, and so if you've got your Bibles, you might turn there. It's in your New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. If you didn't, Feel free to look it up if you need to, um, but we're going to jump in here, and that may seem like a strange text for Easter, but let me tell you why we're going there. Um, Easter, most of the time, if you're used to being around church, we come and we look at a passage that deals with the cross or a passage that deals with empty tomb, and this passage doesn't deal with those directly, but it deals with the implications, and so it unpacks the, the reality of what the cross and the empty tomb mean for you and mean for me. And so it's going to help us to apply and understand really what it is that Easter is all about. Ultimately, Easter celebrates the two most important events in all of human history. Jesus' death upon a cross to pay for our sins, and the empty tomb, which is his resurrection, which brought victory over sin and over death. And uh, my, my guess is that that's not new information for you. That most of you realize that Easter has something to do with Jesus and something to do with his death and something to do with his resurrection. Uh, but here's the question I have for you today. What makes that information meaningful for you personally? 
What makes that information come to life in a way that changes, changes you and moves this from merely being a religious ceremony uh, about a much debated historical moment to actually being something that reorients your entire life? The answer is personal confidence in the person of Jesus. When you personally engage him, when you believe in him, when you trust him, it changes everything. And so we're going to look at this passage today. And here's what we're going to see. Uh, I want you to know um, Easter confronts every one of us and also comforts every one of us. So I'm going to offend you in some ways, um, but I'm also going to offer you hope. And Easter is going to do that for each of us today. And we have to choose ultimately between what we're going to see in this passage is the despair of what I'm going to call resume righteousness and the joy of Christ's confidence. So those are the two things we're going to see. And first, we're going to unpack the despair of resume righteousness. So as we get into Philippians, as you think about that, if you haven't been here with us, Philippians is all about joy. And Paul says he writes this and he stays and he's devoted to seeing everyone that follows him, that hears his words, uh, to see them grow in terms of their progress and joy in the faith. Um, Contrary to popular opinion, Christians are supposed to be joyful. And I know that sometimes popular culture shapes the way we think about that. Sometimes Christians who are not really living in light of what Christ's done shapes the way you think about that. But Christians should be the most joyful people on earth. And Philippians drives at that point, pushes us. And so he begins and says, rejoice in the Lord. And he's gonna continue to call us to joy. But here's what we see in Philippians 3. Paul's gonna stop and he's gonna hit pause on some of that conversation because he fears that people are gonna lead you away from a path of joy. He fears that there's people who are gonna hem in on you and push you into a way that actually brings you to despair rather than joy. And so we're gonna unpack that. In verses four to six, Paul's gonna give us an example from his life. I don't know if you realize this, but every generation, as you move through history, sets up some sort of an ideal that says, this is sort of the ideal man or woman. This is the the hero of our culture. This is the kind of person we all want to be. And for, for Paul in his day, that was a very religious person. And so Paul is going to give us, in a sense, his religious resume and show you how effective he was at living out this kind of hero culture of of a religious type of a person. He starts off with a very strong statement. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Uh, Any of you like to watch basketball, getting ready for playoffs? You know, one of the things that's a constant on a basketball court is guys that ooze with confidence, especially as their shots are starting to fall late in the game and they start talking a little smack. And so they're going back down the court after, after sinking a three and they're talking trash to someone going, hey man, I got you. Hey man, you don't stand a chance. Hey man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come at you all night long. And they're oozing with confidence. That's sort of what Paul does here. He says, look, if any of you have reason to be confident in yourself, I got more. And look at the reasons why he says he has confidence. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What he means is, man, I'm not an import to the faith. I got in this thing from the very beginning. I was circumcised on the eighth day the way you're supposed to be. I'm not an import into Judaism, but I'm an actual believer who wasn't a convert. I'm of the people of Israel, meaning I came from the right cultural heritage. I I was passed down in, in 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 the right family tree. So I'm of the people of Israel. Not only that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And of all the ones that, the, the tribes that went away, man, there, there were two, Judah and Benjamin, that sort of stayed most true. And he says, man, I was one of the, I was one of the good guys. I'm, I'm from the lineage that, I mean, we were, we were pure 
and culturally committed. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I didn't sell out to the Greeks and Romans when they showed up. I stayed faithful. I mean, so I'm more religious than most of you guys. It says, in regard to the law, Pharisee, what he's saying here is, I'm highly educated. I'm well-trained. I've been schooled in the best schools. I've, I've gone to the elite institutions that taught us how to understand the faith. And so I'm, I excelled in my education as a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, meaning, man, I was one of the most devout, passionate. I was an activist. I was a leader. I was running ahead of everyone else in the faith. I knew exactly where this thing needed to go and was running that direction. As for right living according to the rules, he says, I was blameless. Meaning I was a good boy. I was a rule follower. Man, I wasn't one of those that was like the prodigal that ran off, but I did everything right. Do you see his... What, what Paul's claiming? He's like, look, if any of you have a right and say, I mean, I did all the right stuff. Paul's like, I did it better. He's talking smack to all the people that he's, that he's preaching to. He's saying, I excelled as far as I could in the religious model. But you know what he's going to say a little bit later? It's all junk. All of it that I thought was going to gain me the world actually ended up being something that was a loss. It's actually rubbish. None of it amounted to everything. It sold me a bill of goods. It never brought me the happiness that I thought it would. It never gave me the reward I thought it was going to give me. But as I poured myself in over and over and over, it still, I still came up empty. See, this is the despair of resume righteousness. When we look at our, what makes us confident in our flesh, in our obedience, in our goodness, and we always fall short. And Paul says, as good as it was, it wasn't enough. Um, self-achievement, self-determination, self-identity never bring us the joy we think it will. But we all live this way, don't we? I mean, maybe not religious, but we all live by resume. We all run after stuff. We all chase the, the good life in some sort of a way. Um, and really, what do, you, what do you use a resume for? One guy said, a resume is what you use to try to go from the outside to the inside of something. It's what you try to earn your way to, to prove your worth, to show that, man, I'm, 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 an, I'm not in that club right now, but I'm going to show you how good I am. I'm going to give you my, my, all, my, all, all the good stuff that I've done so that you want me to come be in your club. Any of you ever pledged a fraternity or sorority? What they talk about rush, because everyone's in a rush, and you have to prove that, you, that you're wanted to be in that group. And so you're invited in. We all live by resumes. College, uh, my son, who's, in, uh, who's 16, was yesterday, my, he and my wife were working on his college resume. Uh, they were building a resume to try to get him ready for college. So you put together all the things you've done, and literally what they tell you is put everything you've ever done on there to make it look as impressive as you can. And so it's like, I served in this way. I got this grade. I took these classes. I did this stuff. And you're trying to prove to that institution, that college, that place where you want to get accepted, that you're worthy of their acceptance. And so you keep doing it. Then you get into college and what happens? Now you start to look for friends and you all of a sudden realize, man, I got in, but now I got to prove myself here. I got to wear the right stuff. I got to get in the right groups. I got to take the right major. I've got to get the right grades. I've got to do the right stuff. And now you got to prove yourself again. This works this way in all of life. And think about your career. We pad our resumes with all the right phrases, all the right stuff, all the right activities to show that they, you, that they should want you to come work there. Um, I, I, I got married before dating apps were a thing, but I understand dating apps work a similar way. Like you got to put the photo that makes you look just right. 
You need to have a body that has the right shape. You need to have the right hobbies and activities. You need to have the right income that proves when you're dating that, that you're going to be able to provide the quality of life someone wants. It's a resume, righteousness, that drives it all. Social media. I don't even have to say anything, do I? Like, you just know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you have to prove you went to the right places. You gotta, you, you gotta eat the right food, and you gotta take a picture of it, make sure everyone sees it. You've gotta go on the right vacations. You've gotta, you've gotta virtue signal that you're committed to the right causes and that you hate the right bad guys. And you've gotta continue to drive at these things in order to get more likes and followers and prove your worth and find acceptance. All of us live in this world of resume righteousness as if we're trying to make a way for ourselves to earn a way from the outside of something to the inside of something. And that's what Paul, I think, is talking about. And he says it doesn't really add up. But we want some level of respect, some level of self-confidence we can hold on to. One guy pointed out that we even try to prove a resume to ourselves. That if we don't measure up to our own standards, we're disappointed in ourselves. Can you relate to that? And when we do well, what do we do? Feel pretty proud. When we do poorly, man, you beat yourself up. When you don't look the way you want, man, you, you scourge yourself. You, you, you pound on yourself. Oftentimes we, we feel shame. When we blow it in some way or when we don't live up to our standards, we tend to feel disgusted with ourselves, to beat ourselves up, maybe even to hate ourselves. It's because you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to sell yourself your own resume and convince yourself that you're a value and that you're worthy of acceptance. Friends, do you see how resume living is not just a religious issue? But ultimately, this is a prevalent issue in however we live our lives. Our world is a resume righteousness kind of world that you have to prove your worth every step of the way. I think it's important to understand that our, when our generation thought that somehow if we escaped the religious culture, if we escaped kind of the, 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 the cultural norms, if we embraced more of a, a liberated freedom, that we would no longer live in this sort of pressure to perform and pressure to conform. But what we've seen is exactly the opposite. In fact, what I would say is the, the more progressive people are now, it seems as though they've become the most pharisaical that you now have a list of expectations and standards that you have to live up to and you have to conform your life to. That's just as dogmatic as the religious standards that they've tried to shirk and get away from. And so whether you go the, the religious route or the irreligious route, you're still living a resume righteousness kind of a life. Um, but now everything is up to us. And so we've thrown away religious rules and truth claims and so that we could live this kind of limitless freedom of life. The problem with that is that when you do that, you have to prove yourself over and over and over. Uh, Alan Noble says this, and I think it's important uh, just to point this out. But if we exist by ourselves, for ourselves, without limits, without any reference to anything outside of self, then we're the owners of our own souls and we have to take responsibility for everything. Everything depends solely on you which is gonna lead you to a place of despair. I'm gonna read kind of a long quote here, and so you gotta hang with me. I'm gonna put it on the screen, but I think it's important because it's important for us to understand what our culture, how our culture is engaging with this sort of righteousness resume sort of a lifestyle. 
Noble writes this, he says, to be your own person and belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about your existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I am responsible for living a life of purpose, for finding my identity, for interpreting meaningful events, choosing my values, selecting where I belong. If I belong to myself and I am the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do, no one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, to assure me that I'm okay. I belong to myself. That's good news that we're, or we're told that that's good news, right? But look what happens. He says, but the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and my own redeemer. This burden manifests itself in a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. But because everyone else is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity, society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals vying for attention, meaning, and significance, not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. Do you see what he's, what he's trying to get us to wake up to? And when it all depends on you, it all depends on you. It, the world rests on your shoulders. Your future is up to whatever you can make it. There, there's no outside voice to come alongside you and speak into that that actually can actually help. You have, to, you have to summon up the energy. You have to summon up an identity. You have to summon up a purpose. You have to suffer, summon up self-effort in order to make a life for yourself, and it all rests upon you. That's why I call it a despair of, righteous, of righteousness. Friends, do you know that the biggest problem in keeping you coming from God is not your, your sin? Christ can deal with that. It's your confidence. The thing that keeps you away from coming to God is your confidence in yourself. Ultimately, that what makes you a Christian is not just to feel bad and repent of your wrongs. Everyone does that. But to repent of your rights. To lay down yourself. To say, I, cannot, I can no longer depend on myself for my life. I'm going to depend on another. That's what Easter is all about. That's why Paul says something shocking in verses 7 and 8. He says, whatever gain I had by my righteous resume, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Notice what Paul does. He, he doesn't back down on his qualifications, right? He, 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 remember earlier he said, look, if any of you have a right to be confident, I've got more rights to be confident. He said, but that's not going to leave me where I want to go. So ultimately that is just a loss. It's not a gain. Whatever gains I had on my resume, I now see it all differently. Meaning he moves it from the profit column in his spreadsheet to the losses. He moves it from assets to liabilities. He says, all those things are actually, are actually dragging me down. They're not actually lifting me up the way I thought. He said, I, I used to see things a certain way, but now I have a new perspective. And that causes him to reevaluate everything. What made him a successful, impressive, respected person? He says, 
all the things that I did to get ahead in life, I now look at them as losses. Why? What changed Paul? What shifted his perspective? It says the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. When he got a look at Jesus, it changed everything. When he understood who Jesus was, it rocked him to the core and reoriented his entire life. That phrase, he says, surpassing worth or surpassing greatness means superior value. In some ways, it means the super thing. So of all the things you want, this is the super thing that you really want. And Jesus is that super thing that's even better. What that means is that, that, that his beauty eclipses all other beauties. That when you, when you step out into the sun with a nightlight, it doesn't, do much, it doesn't do much to affect the sun, does it? The sun overwhelms it. What Paul is saying is, this is the difference between a McRib sandwich at McDonald's and Aaron Franklin's brisket. This is the difference between a matchbox car and driving a Ferrari. Uh, This is the difference between between a nightlight and the sun. He says, when you see Jesus, everything else pales. He's not saying that all those things were, uh, that, that, that I just woke up one day and said, all this stuff doesn't matter. What he says is, when I saw Jesus, because of his surpassing value, because he was the super thing that my heart wanted more than anything else, all the stuff that I used to run after looked meaningless. All the stuff that used to compel me, that used to drive me, that that I used to pull myself up and and run after, all of a sudden, it looked more like a loss than a gain because I compare everything to be lost compared to knowing Christ. See, his ultimate goal is to know Jesus. It's a relational connection. It's like a family connection. He says, I intimately know him. It's why he calls him my Lord. He's Christ Jesus, mine. He's my king. He's my Lord. He's the one that I'm connected to relationally. Friends, do you know him? Do you know Jesus that way? Do you call him your Lord? Is he your king? Have you, have you set self off the throne and put Jesus there? so that you understand who he really is. See, any life without Christ is shallow and void of lasting joy. That's why Paul goes even further. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I'm gonna get myself in a little bit of trouble here. But this word rubbish, um, I'll just say Bible translators are nervous about putting iffy words in the Bible because they wanna sell things. Um, But if you look at this word rubbish, it actually means something a little bit stronger than that. The old King James Version got it right uh, a little bit closer. They called it dung. Some translations have called it excrement. Uh, My Greek professor, and I'm just gonna throw it on him because we asked him the question, we're like, do you think we should say that in church? And he said, yes. He said, what the word means is crap. That's what, that's what this means. He said, don't use the other word, that's too strong, but that's the right word. He says, oh, I look at everything in my life and all of my resume and all the good stuff I did and all the things I did to try to earn my way in life. And he said, it's just crap. That, that's the way Paul looks at it. And ultimately, I, man, I know for Easter, this is you know, supposed to be pastel and marshmallow peeps and chocolate bunnies. But what Paul says is, all my trophies, all my cash and cryptocurrency, all my degrees, all my awards, all the promotions that I've gotten, all my family accolades, everything is just crap compared to knowing Jesus. And Paul uses strong language. And I'll just say this, like as a preacher, preachers are usually pretty cautious about stepping on toes because they know what comes back from that. But Paul just says, this is how strongly I feel and I want you to know this. All the things I used to want, desire, seek, build my life upon are rubbish. They're refuse. Things that 
I used to be compulsive about trying to prove myself. Doesn't matter. So what causes Paul to say something so extreme? Ultimately, it's his confidence, and it's his joy and his confidence in Christ. In order, verse 9, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is where our confidence comes from. To be a Christian is to be in union with Christ, to be united to him, to be found in him. It means that, the, that you have a new source of your life and you have a new sphere in which you live. And so your whole life, Paul says, for me to live is Christ. That has changed everything in my life. Not having a righteousness that comes uh, from my own self, but a righteousness that comes from God. Not having a righteousness that comes through my flesh and all my effort, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. And so he says, look outside of himself for the righteousness only God can give that's received by faith. He says two things about righteousness. To gain Christ means to be done with the righteousness that comes from self. You, you have to choose one or the other. And then to receive this new righteousness comes from God through faith. It has to do with your right standing with God. Friends, do you understand that it's a gift that comes from the righteous life of Jesus? That Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose victorious in order that you might be saved. And so the righteousness that he achieved, he gives to you if you believe and if you trust in him. But it depends on faith. And what that means is you transfer the ownership of self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. You're no longer depending on your goodness. You're saying, I'm going to put all, bank all my life on his goodness. It's like looking at a, something at a chair and saying, I'm standing on my own strength, but I'm going to transfer the weight of my life completely to someone else and rest on their strength. So now it's not me who stands, but it's Christ who stands under me. That's the, the picture that we're meant to get from this. And so as you think about this, it's an either-or proposition. Either you choose where to place your glory and confidence. In verse 3, he says that, uh, that to be a true Christian means that you are one who glories in Christ. Meaning you don't glory in self because it's not up to you anymore. You glory in Christ because Christ has done it. You no longer put confidence in your flesh. You put confidence in him. And so there's this great exchange that takes place when we're found in him. Why does it make so much difference for you? See, you have to understand to be found in Christ is to have complete confidence. In some ways, it's to be bulletproof. To be found in Christ means that your confidence is no longer in yourself. He's already won the war. And so when you fail, it's not the end of your world. If you get fired, it, it doesn't change your value and worth. When you have a friendship that goes south, you're not alone. When your kids wander in the faith, you can turn to the Lord in prayer. It means that, that your life is not determined on the ups and downs of your performance and your circumstances. But you can have a confidence that's stronger than you. You can have a confidence that's strong as the power of the resurrection. That beat sin and death and walked out of the empty tomb and said, it is finished. And so you can rest in that confidence. When you fall into sin, it doesn't mean that you just excuse it. You can say, I know what I did was wrong and I'm going to seek the Lord's help and I'm going to find accountability from God's community around me. But it doesn't derail my faith because my righteousness was not built upon myself. My righteousness was built upon Christ. And so you can depend on him even when you fall into sin. It doesn't mean you're not going to experience sorrow or suffering or hard times. But it means that those things do not have the last word in your life and you never have to face them alone. That's what Easter is all about. It's the true freedom that Christ brings. You no longer have to live by your resume righteousness. So when your family isn't perfect, 
It's okay because your family is not your righteousness. You're not earning through the leading of your family your way to acceptance. When your job doesn't go well, your job's not your righteousness. And so it doesn't derail your whole life. When your bank account um, is, is looking empty, it's okay because it's not your righteousness. Christ is your righteousness. If you understand that, it changes everything. Think about all the stuff it says we receive by faith. It says, for the sake of Christ, that's purpose. Knowing Christ, that's relationship. Gaining Christ, that's treasure. Being found in Christ, that's security. Righteousness from God, that's right standing before the Almighty that lasts forever. This is what we have when we, treat, when we choose him. So friends, we come back to that question. Where is your trust? Is it in your righteous resume? And all the good that you can do? Because it's a heavy burden to bear. Where's your confidence in Christ? Because that's where lasting joy comes. Friends, do you know this Jesus? Paul ends and he says, all of this is so that I may know him. He's the super thing. He's the one of superior worth. He's the one that's better than anything else you could chase after and all the stuff that drives your life, that calls you to pursue and run after compulsively chasing after some place to feel like you're on the inside of some group, that you've got some significance, that you've got some worth, that you've got some value, all the things that drive you in that direction. Jesus says, you don't have to do that anymore. Don't live by a resume, live by confidence in him. And we do that by aligning our lives with his righteousness, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And we trust him. The only way to live with the confidence that never goes up and down, depending on your performance, that never goes up and down based on your circumstances, never flinches in the face of fear, is for you to be found in him. That's what Easter is all about. And his surpassing greatness is ultimately what you need. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that each person here might be found in Jesus. Father, for those who are exhausted from running, exhausting from, exhausted from building their resume, exhausting from trying try to live the righteous life, Father, would you let them see your grace and the righteousness that comes from you through faith because of Jesus. Father, I pray that everyone here would know, would know him, would know his love. Father, would you keep anyone from walking out of these doors without knowing that they're loved by you in the person of Jesus. Father, we pray in his name. Amen.